This is Grace Cho, another episode of Creative Careers. Today, we have an enormous treat. Uh, It is an honor to speak with Pauline Brown. Her background is incredible. She has done a lot of different jobs. She's held a lot of positions. Former chairman of LVMH North America. Uh, She's an author. She's been a consultant and executive in residence at the Columbia B School, amongst many other things. I am thrilled to be speaking with Pauline. So hello, welcome. Thank you. Good to be oh, here, Grace. Thank you. It's a real treat to speak with you today. You've had a, an incredible career. If you could walk us through how you got here. I had several jobs over the last 20 to 30 years that had the word strategy in the title. I haven't been all that strategic with my career. I've made some good opportunistic moves. I've made some mistakes. It's been a zig and a zag, though, that the story has come together seemingly, seamlessly, is because there were some common threads, which I didn't always realize as I was making decisions. I thrive in creative environments. I don't need to be a creative. In fact, by nature, I'm, I'm, I'm not an artisan. I don't work with my hands. I didn't study fine arts. I appreciate it enormously. But when I'm around people who think with their imagination, who are idea-driven, who are expressive and, and experimental in all things artistic, I am so joyful. And so I was always drawn to businesses that were driven by that kind of artistic talent. And my first real job was not that kind of an industry. I I was a consultant at Bain in Boston, not a creative environment, and I was miserable. So I just did what anyone who, you know, listens to themselves enough ends up doing. I say, what does Pauline like? And what, what kind of environment does she want to be in? One of the things was the breakthrough into these creative industries is growing up, I was for a period of time in my teens, obsessed with makeup. I really liked playing with beauty products. And I started doing a lot of makeovers, mostly my sister, a few friends. And so when I was looking to leave Bain, I picked a couple of companies that make products that I enjoy. And makeup and and other forms of beauty were one of a small number of industries that I targeted. And I ended up getting a very nice offer from Estee Lauder. And I ended up staying there almost 10 years, really learning the art and science of building a beauty brand. And so that was one of the more pivotal twists and decisions in my career. And most of the subsequent jobs were natural extensions of that one. And then how did you get to that very prestigious position at LVMH? Yeah, I was, after a short period of time, appointed the head of strategy for the company. The strategy for Estee Lauder was to grow. It was an newly launched public company. It had been a family business that IPO'd shortly before I got there. There was a lot of pressure to grow as a business, and they weren't really growing with the core brands, which were Lauder and Clinique and Aramis. Number one, because they were all very department store dependent, which was not a growth retail segment even back then. And number two, because they were old big brands and the trends going back to the 90s was these sort of new, funky upstart with more of a personal association, whether it was the the person of the form of a dermatologist, the person of a makeup artist, the person of a hairstylist. And Estee Lauder and its sister brands couldn't compete with that. So the strategy to grow turned into a strategy to buy up other businesses that they really couldn't keep up with. 
And these were very entrepreneurial businesses. And by virtue of where I was sitting in the company, that became my job to help identify these next generation growth vehicles, which were other cosmetic brands, to do the deals, to work with the entrepreneurs, to integrate them into the company without allowing them to lose their soul and all the things that made them attractive in the first place. So I did this job for many years and I loved it. And what I missed is I thought that what I was loving was being a deal person because I was their in-house deal person. And so some years later, the Carlisle Group, big private equity firm, says, we're going to start a consumer team. We want to get somebody who's done a lot of deals, who understands how to work with consumer teams, consumer branded teams and management um, and organizations, and who can help us to really value these companies appropriately. And so I was a, a natural fit on paper. And they made a financial offer that was too good to, to refuse. I jump ship and go uh, to the Carlisle Group. And what I missed is that doing a deal at Carlisle wasn't about working with creative people anymore or picking industries that were fun and sexy and that you know spoke to me as, as an individual. It was about unleashing value. It was about making money for the partners, for the investors, for the management teams. And that was never really my driver. And so after a few years, um, and, and quite burned out just by virtue of how intense it was, I took a big time out. And while I was refashioning myself, LVMH found me. But I was intrigued by a few things with LVMH. Um, one, that it really is a collection of a lot of little companies. It didn't feel that big. It felt like a big portfolio. And number two, that it really got me much closer to my core, which is going back to not just brands that are, are built by creative people, but brands that have deep heritage, brands that tell stories and stories that make others dream and aspire. So once again, I took the leap and that's how I ended up there. It's a very big company and I had just in the U.S. division alone, about 25,000 people across all the different brands. So not all of it was fun and games and playing at champagne tastings, going to the fashion shows. There was still a lot of corporate and strategic demands. But it, again, it's, it was a lot easier to deal with that as I was genuinely interested in the content. I love the way you explained that you got closer to the creative stories around the brand. I think that's very important. So with these very high profile positions, both brands have strong identities in their assemblage of brands. How did you manage those two sides? I've worked with now a few companies that have portfolios. If you go back to Estee Lauder, there were, while I was there, about 25 different brands, and they were all in the same beauty universe, but every one of them had a different position, a different history, a different culture. And the fear was always that if you fold it all together, that inevitably it's human nature that there'll be a harmonization across the group, which really means in brand speak, like a watering down of what makes each one special. And LVMH is another similar situation where, in that case, you have 70 brands across many different sectors, and everyone has its own special thing, which is what made it worth being part of the portfolio. So if my job was to do strategy or to make day-to-day -day decisions for all 70 brands, it would have gone off the rails very early on. My job was, in some ways, to protect the individual's that were dedicated to those brands. Every one of them have a brand head. They have a global head. If they're big enough, they'll have a US market head. They have their dedicated uh, sales teams, their dedicated product and design teams. So the only things that get shared across the group are what I call the commodity functions, HR, 
finance, accounting, technology. So there's some sharing that goes on in that, and that required some management. But the most important decision that I could make was to make sure that the right people were in the right seats with their individual brand focus, and that when there were pressures that might, because there's inevitably going to be tension between what's in the commercial best interest of a given business and what's maybe in the artistic best interest or the long-term brand value best interest, that, that I could help those teams strike the right balance. So I think that the important point there is that there should be some tension and that it should be managed and that you always want to strike a balance so that you're making enough commercial decisions to keep the business viable, but not so many that you lose the longer term focus, which is, I would say, something that LVMH does supremely well because so many of their brands go back decades, a few of them centuries they are very good at taking a longer term view and therefore protecting some of the shorter term constraints that affect, I'd say, other companies that don't take that view. In your experience, have you seen a difficulty in finding someone who had both skills, the creative versus the financial? The short answer is there are very few people who within their individual capacity, can do both well. I think that the winning brands typically have organizations that balance well across the group as opposed to within an individual. But I think Europeans tend to fare better on that front than Americans. And America really is the pioneer in this whole notion of economies of scale, efficiency, Moore's Law, all that thinking and the processes that drive a lot of global business really came out of the American success story. And therefore, Americans don't trust as much that which isn't as measurable, that which doesn't move as fast, that which doesn't create as much progress and disruption. Europeans have a great respect and almost a a religious attitude toward their heritage, toward craftsmanship, and I think toward preserving that which really made each of those European cultures. And I don't just mean France versus Germany, but even within France, you've got the Champagne region and the Bordeaux. They think of themselves culturally as quite distinct. In Italy, the difference between those in Milan and those in Rome are very distinct. And the awareness of that distinction, which is partly a mindset and partly a tradition, that's still something that they adhere to much more comfortably and and tightly than we've ever known or seen here in the U.S. So aesthetic intelligence, let's move on to that topic. So you've written a book about it. How do you define it? Yeah, people ask me that all the time. They get it, but they're not quite sure. And I always like to say, first of all, what it's not. So aesthetic intelligence is not about design thinking. I have a great amount of respect for colleagues who are in the field of design thinking. But the difference here, though, is that design thinking really came out of, it came with more of a sort of industrial development uh, mindset, but it's a way of using design to elegantly solve problems. Aesthetic intelligence is not about solving problems. It's about eliciting delight. And I go back to, I was as an MBA student at Wharton in the early 90s, and no one ever talked to me about how I can unleash delight. I was a marketing major, and we'd, we'd spend an inordinate amount of time trying to measure how to match functions and features more closely with what a customer base would tell us they're looking for. I mean, it's a very rational way of approaching business. But study after study shows that about 85% of decision-making around why you buy one product over another is driven by emotions. 
some 15% is driven by how it made. So going back to your question, what is aesthetic intelligence? Aesthetics comes from the Greek word aesthetikos, which is about perception of the senses and more specifically about how we derive pleasure from the senses. So what's important here is it really entails all five senses. If you have a a very aesthetic experience at a restaurant, yes, the food better be good because it won't be a good experience otherwise, but so should the ambiance, so should the lighting, the acoustics, the cutlery. It should, and it should all be designed with in mind that these, the surroundings of your culinary experience come together and elevate the actual cuisine. So when I talk about aesthetic intelligence, I'm talking about first and foremost, getting back in touch with our human senses, being highly aware of the different cues that your product or service has on real people, not on data, but on real people who are using and experiencing and interacting with it, and how you can lift them both in real time, meaning when they're using your product or when they're in your store buying your product, but also in their mind, in the, about 50% of the value of a product is not simply when you're using it or when you're buying it. 50% is the memory of when you did use it or the anticipation of when you will again. And this idea, we call that the halo effect of what happened before and what happened after and how you feel about that, that should be extended. That a great aesthetic experience should be as much about how you remember it as about how you experienced it in the moment. And so when I talk about aesthetic intelligence, it is the ability to not only have a, a deep and, and very astute sense of your own uh, aesthetic tastes and sensibilities and preferences, but also the, the imagination and empathy to understand how different cues that you can control will affect other people and, and give them the kind of delight that you want to, that you would want to experience. Oh, I love that. Because yes, the emotional aspect of why you choose one thing over another is such a huge factor, for sure. So in our world, visual artists are always wanting to elicit emotion from the works that they create, whether it's a sculpture or painting or photograph. So in terms of building their own brand, how would they apply principles of aesthetic intelligence in building their brand and their businesses around art? On the flip side, if you have organizations and schools and galleries, companies in the design space, how would they apply principles of aesthetic intelligence in their strategy? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll start with the artist. First of all, my, my book is really an homage to highly creative people and artists who I think, for the most part, have been undervalued by business. I've worked directly for a couple of CEOs of big companies, and I've been in the boardroom with many more who I haven't worked with, but I've observed in action. If An investor or any other constituent asked a CEO a question about financial performance, he or she, usually he, would, you know, respond and would answer it and would own the results. If you asked a question about the branding of the company, about a new campaign, maybe that they were doing about product development for maybe a next generation, the CEO would probably defer to the art director to the advertising agency, to the uh, CMO. I've never seen CEOs, with the exception of very few highly design-oriented companies, feel the same sense of ownership and accountability on those decisions that they feel over the financial decisions, the the operational stuff, the managerial stuff. But what's so interesting here is that those decisions, in many ways, move the needle much more. Because in the short term, if you get say, the supply chain off track, you'll lose big time. You cannot afford not to have a working you know, back-end operation. 
but you're not going to win on that, not in the long term, because there'll always be someone with a better technology who can get there quicker or cheaper or whatever. What is very hard to replicate if done well is the eye that goes with great design. And, and I looked at the, the turning point where other people, I think, could start to get this conflict that I'm, I'm pointing to was Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, first of all, let me say he, he was a smart guy, but I'm going to guess that he didn't have the IQ of a Bill Gates and definitely not of Albert Einstein. So smart guy, but not historically smart. Very low emotional intelligence. Aesthetic intelligence was off the chart. And what is important here is that the reason that that Apple today is fighting for the top spot in global valuation in the world is not because their microprocessing power is that much better than Dell's or HP or any of the other companies that were doing what they were doing long before them. It's because they took a group of products and devices and redefined how it can feel to people. And that piece to me is so much more precious. If you can get the fundamentals right, the piece that you layer on that kind of says, this is what we stand for, and this is how it should feel to interact with. I would love to see people with the kind of talent that our listeners have be better rewarded and better understood and more empowered. And then the other part of your question, though, which is, how would I advise them to take what they do, which we've just agreed violently is so valuable? I would tell people to start really studying other industries and how they were able to create extraordinary brands out of very simple concepts. Why is Coca-Cola one of the most powerful brands in the world when all it is a cylinder with bubbly, sugary stuff that's not good for you, that no one needs? The genius that went to creating over many, many decades, something that is so much a part of our culture. I think that often, and I talk about, you know, how you, you can create and harness these brand codes in a way that some companies like a McDonald's or on the upscale of Vuitton or Gucci today, they've had a very nice revival, are doing supremely well. And all these other companies that are doing things in, in terms of the actual functionality of their products don't get the shelf space don't you know last for the decades. So I think that it's about studying and really having a better grasp of what it is that these other companies are doing that's been so effective. I would imagine aesthetic intelligence is much more important these days, especially with all the technology that's around where it's just constantly on them, on the web, on iPhones and tablets. How has that impacted the importance of aesthetic intelligence? You pick up on a really good point. As a society, we're obsessed with the transformation of technology, the transformative activities that have been enabled by tech, whether it's access to information or speed or an ability to get what you want when you want it. But what's happened with all of that is while we live much more efficient lives and quicker lives, we're thirsting a certain sort of qualitative component that is what has made us not only feel human, but sort of celebrate humanity for centuries, for millennia. And that is the ability to connect with others in intimate ways, the ability to express ourselves. This is not a modern phenomenon. You go back to tribal societies, cavemen-like societies, and they will still make, whether it's beaded necklaces and tattoo-like decorations around the body and all sorts of rituals. This is part of the human condition, our need to express ourselves, our need to create comfortable, beautiful environments for especially our loved ones. And Whilst we spend so much time living efficiently 
and staring at the screens, you got no touch, you got no smell, you got no taste. Okay, fine. You do have visual, but you have no depth of visual. So even the best resolution on screen is never going to be as good as looking at that same image in person in 3D. Will never be that good. And the other point is in sound. The sound, again, has gotten a lot better with the various systems today than it was just 10 years ago. I'll listen on the best sound system to an orchestra, and it wouldn't be as good as listening to it, that same orchestra, that same music being played in a Carnegie Hall. There's a richness, even in the senses that are being stimulated, is missing. And so this is really about, it's about the senses. It's about what makes, for so many of us, life joyful. And to your question earlier about why now more than ever, it's because those particular features are so understimulated and wanting. Brilliant. Absolutely. I could talk all day with you, Pauline. I want to thank you on behalf of the creative community for alerting everyone of the importance and the critical aspect of having that emotional aesthetic intelligence when it comes to brands, companies, and all that, because far too many times I've seen that part of the business neglected. So thank you for raising that issue with a lot of these brands. We'd love to have you back and talk to us more. My honor would be my honor. And I, again, really appreciate your support. Thank you so much, Pauline. Today, we talked to Pauline Brown. This is Creative Careers. We help creative succeed. Thank you.